0: You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. We're in a series right now called Joseph and the Technicolor Dream. Jesus' dream is technicolored. Paul calls it the manifold wisdom of Christ. The angels look into this, this era unfolding. They cannot believe How the miracle of the nations, the miracle of Jesus to take that table of nations that was scattered at Babel to be gathered underneath the Holy Spirit, many tongues, many languages, all bowing down to one king and one throne. That's a miracle. Have you seen the division today? Have you seen the scatteredness of our own personal families and heart, let alone the nations? He's gathering a technicolor dream, a technicolor dream. And he's faithful, not because Joseph's some crazy prophet, but because he's a child. Because he's 17 years old and God speaks to him in a dream and he's arrogant. He is at the center of his dream at the beginning of it. But by the end, he's no longer at the center. Jesus at the center. And he uses even Joseph's like you and me to feed nations that are in times of famine. This is the dream that we would give our lives away to. This is the dream he's trying to wake us up from today. I always say that people, people dream of getting married and having kids, but they do not dream of morning sickness. And they don't dream of pesky, you know, annoying attributes of their spouse. They dream of being a great leader, but they don't dream about the hustle and the hard work that it takes to get there. We're always dream in our own dream that everything's fancy and free and and we're at the middle of it, but Jesus will spare no expense to wake us up to his dream. His is the one that comes true. The technicolor dream is where we're at. So we're in Genesis chapter 37, if you want to get there, and I'm going to get super distracted by that light. I feel like I'm about to get pulled over uh, by that technicolor light up there. I don't know if there's a way to turn that off. Um, I'll tell you what, though, if you want to have a dream and live in your own bubble, don't have kids because they will mess it up real quick. Uh, Kids... um, they didn't ever have a filter. They just tell you what they think all the time. They'll be like, "So why is that zit right in the middle of your forehead?" You know, like, "Why?" You know, "Why?" When you shaved your beard, did your chin line just disappear? Why? Like, you look like an unemployed Santa Claus right now. Like, you know, you shave your, you shave your beard. Um, I, uh, I picked up my third son Alex's best friend Jet one time and put him in the back of the minivan. And I'm telling you, in 10 seconds, you know, they're just like staring at you and you're like really afraid of what they're gonna say. I'm in the rearview mirror looking at him and he goes, he goes your dad's beard is weird, and I'm like, I'm already sensitive about it, I know that, like, it's just not, it's patchy, but it's, again, I look like an unemployed Santa Claus, you know, if I shave it off, and kids get scared about it, you know, so it's like, I just leave it up there, and he, and I just double-check, he goes, your dad's beard is weird, and I was like, what'd you just say? Jack, this kid's three, looked at me in the face, he goes, your beard is not weird, <laughs> and I turned around, I was like, that's not what you said, and he turned back. he says, his beard is weird, you know, this is what he said, three years old, he just said it, had a kid in um, uh, gymnastics class, little girl, had to keep her in from like three to five. Couldn't even let her out. She went to Lowe's Home Improvement and told the lady at the checkout, I like your mustache. It looks good on you. Told the lady, I like your mustache at Lowe's. That was it. As you're dying, you know? You're dying if that's your, that's your kid. You just, it's not feeling good. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, my poor son Oliver didn't even know he had an Uncle Dave until he was four years old. Uncle Dave came to the door and was a little workman and, and uh, he said, Mom, uh, your guy's here. And Kyra's like, that's your Uncle Dave. He was there when you were born. And He was like, oh, I didn't know I have Uncle Dave. You know, well, that's crazy. You know, he just, uh, off the cuff. He's just talking. He's not really having a plan. Um, there, was, there was one time uh, when uh, Mia, our little niece, who's like 22 now at Clemson, um, she's sitting there and she's watching Dora, the Explorer, and uh, just drinking juice boxes and turned to Kyra and she, and she said to Kyra, you know, if you ask the Holy Spirit to come down on you, God will send the Holy Spirit on you. And just start drinking the juice box again, watching Dora the Explorer. From the mouths of babes will my praise come up. Don't silence the little children. They're talking about me. You know what I mean? Like, grown-ups grow out of Jesus. They forget him. They don't have to learn him. They've forgotten, so they have to learn back of where they're from. Psalm 8 has this really deep, rich theological treatise on what humans are. You know, we're just dust, but we're also divine, and we have kingdoms, You know? And who are we, such you know, meek little people, that you would ordain our mouths for praise and have us be crowned with glory and honor? What kind of little underlings would you impress with so, you know, the heavenlies and angels would look in for little tiny infants, little babies, you know, prophesying to the nations. My son, uh, Alec, was watching a worship set the other day, and he just started crying. He said, the Lord loves us so much. And I mean, he's got a great Sunday school teacher, but there's also a great teacher, capital T teacher, that is speaking to my son in the way that he understands, and he was baptized Just the other week, and I didn't do anything of that, you know. I didn't do anything of that in terms of ultimately spiritually changing the destiny. And So here's the thing. Um, We don't hear prophets because they're too small and too little. We don't hear prophecy because it comes to us in the messengers we don't like. We all have to listen to a boss because they have our paycheck and they are impressive. And so we listen to people that are strong and tough and mighty. And we might even listen to our friends, our side-by-side, our spouse, some of the time if we have to. But nobody has to listen to kids. Because they're weak and vulnerable and powerless. But God anoints kids to speak to us. God anoints the weak to prophesy to us. God's not done talking, it's just that we don't like to listen. And we don't oftentimes like the things that kids or prophets have to say. Jesus said from the beginning, it's not a mistake that I'll send little 17-year-old Josephs and you'll hate him for no reason. Because we don't like the package that it comes in. We don't want to get prophesied to by someone 20 years younger than us. Who is that that prophesies to me like as if they know anything? I don't have to listen to you. You know what I mean? Like, you don't impress me. You can't give anything to me, and I can't, you can't take anything from me, so I don't have to listen to you. That's the way the world listens to its prophets. But Jesus says this in Matthew 13, verse, verse 57. A prophet is without honor, as an own town. The people you're closest to might have the most accurate prophecy that you need to hear. Meanwhile, we're going over here to hear Francis Chan and moving heaven and earth to go off to these conferences to go hear these prophets. What if the prophet is your wife saying, wake up to your family? Time is not, time is not long. You're here to disciple your family. What if the prophet to you today is the little kid that's saying, hey, play with me on the carpet? And meanwhile, we go across seas and do all this other stuff and read all these books to try and hear God. Maybe God is in our hometown and we're not listening to him. He's not important enough to us to hear. Not only do we not hear the prophets, but Stephen says, as he's about to be stoned, that we kill the prophets. We have contempt for the prophets. We don't just not hear him. We run from him and close our ears. Stephen, ready to get stoned for his faith, Verse 9 in Acts 7 says, because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph. That's what it really is about. They were mad at Joseph not because he was heretical. They were mad because he was prophesying something that they wish that they were at the center of. Right? The only people that are jealous of arrogant people are arrogant people. And so he's putting these people with these, with these brothers. Right? The brothers are with this Joseph, and they don't like what he has to hear. Not because they want Jesus to be lifted up instead of Joseph. It's that they want to be lifted up instead of Joseph. So they're jealous of Joseph. This is what the, the, the gospel will tell us about this whole story we're going to read. So they sold him over to a slave as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all of his troubles. And he gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of the Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And so Pharaoh made him a ruler over Egypt and all of his palace. But was it Pharaoh or was it God? Was it, was it a conspiracy of evil that put him down there? Or was it a conspiracy of grace that directed and authored Joseph's life? Verse 51, but, uh, verse 51, this is, what, this is, this is still uh, Stephen talking. He kind of goes through all of these, not just Noah, you know what I mean, or Noah, but also Joseph and Abraham and, and Moses, and just kind of says, hey, look, this is the rundown. If you read the history, this ain't new. We've been killing the prophets since day one, just like you're about to kill me. Because people. it's not that people can't hear the prophets. They just don't like what, he's, what they have to say. They're too small, they're too little, and they're calling them, um, much in contrast with their, with their cancel culture, Uh, that the the only finger that's pointing in judgment is really towards them and not anybody else. We don't like what the prophets have to say. You stiff-knucked people, this is what he says, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. It's not that you're just jealous because this guy's arrogant. It's that the Spirit is using somebody that you can't accept, right? And the flesh, it's not about Joseph and the brothers, it's the flesh has always run in contradiction with the Spirit. The things that man does and wants, the things that he can accomplish and keep and gain on his own terms and makes him strong and mighty and insulated are opposed to what the Holy Spirit is doing in his life. And so when the Holy Spirit comes comes to speak, we not only just close our ears, we attempt for, for murder. We attempt for contempt. So you are always resisting the Holy Spirit. This is what he says, and the prophecy is about to be fulfilled right there in that scene. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors didn't persecute? They even killed those who persecuted or predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have been uh, betrayed, and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through the angels, but have not obeyed it. And then it says in verse 57, just as he said, they covered their ears, they yelled at the top of their voices, and they rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. We have always killed the prophets, said Stephen, but in 2021, we're <clears throat> way more um, politically you know, uh, sensitive, and we're, we're way more subtle than that, we, we don't have to kill prophets if we could just cancel them. And so, um, if we don't like what somebody's saying on a national level, we just block them. And we just say, well, that's a toxic relationship, and that's toxic, and I'll just, you know, I'll just cancel them. This is what we do. We don't have to kill somebody. Jesus says that murder isn't happening because of hate. It happens because of apathy and contempt. It means that I don't only just hate this person, I don't think they have any value whatsoever, and so I cut my life out for them. So, in our family... We don't have to kill somebody. We just put our AirPods in and don't listen to them. Right? That's what, it, that's what contempt means. It means you're not worth listening to. And so, and so this idea is that we have, it's not a new thing that we are killing the prophets. We've always been killing the prophets. And might I just add kind of as a maybe observation on a, on a cultural current events level, if we can cancel a scapegoat, we don't need a lamb. If we can find somebody like a Jeffrey Epstein, right, or some political party or some figurehead, and we can blame and cast all of the problems of our society, that guy's the problem because he's a womanizer and he's a toxic guy and da-da-da-da, I don't have to worry about the, the prophecy that's going on in my living room. I can project it on the scapegoat. If there's somebody that we can all banner around and say that's the problem with our society, that's the issue, if we could just solve that racist issue, if we could solve that political person, that person's the face of evil, then we don't have to look in the mirror and we don't have to listen to the prophet and we can have contempt and cancellation without having to do murder. You know, it's the Joseph's brothers don't, none of them really want to kill him. They want them dead, but they don't want to kill him. Right? They don't want blood on their hands. So they cancel him. They sell them off to Egypt. And so it is that we live in these insulated places and we cast our fingers out. But the Bible says that anyone that casts the first stone has a stone coming right back for him. There's four fingers pointing back at me every time I point at somebody else. The prophets wake us up, but there is no scapegoat, there's just goats that need the lamb. There's just people that need the conspiracy of grace to invade in their everyday lives, right? And so this is the deal. There's a conspiracy of grace, at the same, a conspiracy of evil, just like there is a conspiracy of grace in Joseph's story. And there are three little areas that I want us to look at in this run in Genesis 37. The conspiracy of evil, like Epstein doesn't exist because he's a demon. He exists because we're all part of a sexualized culture that endorses male chauvinism and doesn't correct it even in our own living rooms. And we all turn our eye. And so by the time it gets to Epstein, it's like, yeah, it's all the way downriver. There's a conspiracy of evil. It's not just one brother that gets him into Egypt. It's the they. It's the them. It's the entire system, right? So it starts with the passivity of the home. It starts with Jacob's passivity. And Jacob is a passive husband. He's also a passive father. And he doesn't know what's going on on his own roof. And that's where evil begins. It's in the home that the prophet speaks before it's in Washington. Secondly, it's the appearance of love without the actual contents of it. It's the politics of justice. It's not real love the politics of Reuben that conspires with evil. It's the profit margin of Judah. It's the efficiency and the expedition of trying to get things done that costs Joseph his life, or at least tries to kill Joseph. But at the same time as there's a conspiracy of evil, there's also a conspiracy of grace afoot in Joseph's life. So if you're in Genesis, Genesis 37, we're picking up from when um, the brothers hated Joseph all the more, and they plot this wicked scheme against him. And it says, when Joseph arrived at Shechem, A man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, what are you looking for? And he replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? They have moved on from here, the man answered. And I heard them say, oh, excuse me, I'm verses ahead. Excuse me, let me back up. That was verses 15. So I'm going to back up to 12 and it will run into that. So let me catch that. That's Joseph speaking to this guy on on his mission. But before that, he gets sent on his mission from his father. So pick up in verse 12 with me. Apologize about that. It says, it says now, his brothers had gone to graze their father's uh, flocks near Shechem. And Israel, who is Jacob, says to Joseph, "As you know, your brothers are grazing flocks near Shechem. Come, I am going to send you to them." Very well, he replied. So he said to them, "Said to him, go and see if all is well with your brothers and your flocks, and bring a word back to me." Then he sent him off to the valley of Hebron. And so they interviewed um, the uh, the mother of the kids that did the Columbine shooting. Uh, they interviewed her. And much to our dismay, she was completely normal. So here's this guy and he was like obviously vicious and there's all this like internet trail. And if you studied his life at all, there was plenty of a, it wasn't just an overnight thing. It was a slow trickle of events that built up this kind of resentment and depression and anger for this thing. But what bothered us about it is that the parents were just like every other parent, a little bit too busy, a little bit too tired. A little bit too disengaged in their own household to notice the evil that was coming up in their house. This is how it happens. like, it's what Martin Luther King says, it doesn't take you know, a vicious injustice to take over the world. It just takes the apathy of good men. It just takes the turning of the head. It just takes parents being asleep completely at the wheel, right? And we think it's like some vicious animal. No, it's just normal parents are too busy. I used to have a thing that um, my parents used to say, you know, it's like they're too busy, you know, and they're just doing their own thing. And you ever have parents, they just say, handle it. You know, the two little kids, they come and fight, they say, handle it. Well, I get it, you know, parents are exhausted, they're tired, they're distracted, they got all this stuff, they're, they're busy doing their own thing. They say, handle, and what handle it means is I just want you to bring back a good word. I mean, can you just go back in your room and settle it with your brothers? I don't really care why you're anxious. I don't really care why you're insecure. I don't really know what's going on in your school or in your life or what your friends are doing. I just want you to handle it. I want you to go get me a good word. I don't want any more bad words. I don't want any more of that. So come back. Go find your brothers. Go handle it. Go get a good word. This is the soil of where injustice and evil and stuff begins to perpetuate because it's fatherless children. It's shepherds that feed themselves, Right? It's, it's that for, for the kingdom of heaven to abound and expand, it takes more than the church just to say, call me if you need something. Probably the people that are most voiceless and victim are not in this room. And if the nature of the church and the nature of the shepherding within the church and the leadership within the church is call me if you need something, there's v- weak and vulnerable people that are going to pay the price the way that Joseph does just because a parent turns their head. Did you know that most people that are sexually abused, they're sexually abused within like a 10-foot radius of their parents being in the house. Because the parents are just oblivious, and they just want a good word. They just want a good book and a good beer, and they just want you to handle it. Right? So this is where evil begins. It's not Jeffrey Epstein. It starts in the home. It starts in the church. It starts with the neighbor. Where's that guy that hasn't been to your city group right in six weeks? And we have these boundaries of earphones right, and iPhones, and everybody's in their own thing. Jesus says, murder doesn't start because you hate someone. Murder starts because you stop caring, because of apathy. Because of contentment and contempt, they're not worth my time, right? So, put my book down, to put my phone down, to cross the street, and that's all that it takes for evil to get started. It doesn't take a Hitler; just take somebody that's busy, right? So, this is the chain. It's not Epstein's completely fault. He's our scapegoat, but his 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 uh vindic- you know, his um uh, guilt comes back on us in some way, shape, or form. We're all mutually responsible. So, um, when Joseph, this is the passage I was reading earlier, he goes to Shechem. Now, Shechem is the place, you it's like Shechem was the place, if you read in Genesis 35, where Jacob should have known better, his daughter just got raped in Shechem. It's not exactly the best place to send a 17-year-old kid to go wander around in the field, especially when you know that the brothers hate him. And so, he sends, you know, little Joseph down there, and not only was the daughter raped, but all of the brothers, like, got angry at the people that raped him and killed all of them, so... Kind of, not, kind of the hood right now. Not a great spot, right? To just send your kid wandering around, right? So he goes down there. He says, what are you looking for? He says, I'm looking for my brothers. And this guy just sort of shows up, right? So this is the plan. It's a conspiracy. It's a plot of evil that involves multiple people. It's not just one evil guy, scapegoat guy. It's, it's the human ideal. It's the flesh that contends with the spirit. But there's also a conspiracy of grace. Because everybody that reads the Bible knows you don't just stick random guys' places Every time you see a guy in the Bible, it's like the father of this and that and the daughter of this and that and da 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 from this town and this town. There's no identification. It's just a guy. Usually that's like an angel. I'm not really here to say that, divinely speaking, but it certainly is a guy that changes the directory of the story because if Joseph doesn't get redirected by this guy, he probably gives up and just goes back home. So just in the same place as the conspiracy of evil is kind of hitting Joseph's life, so it is the conspiracy of grace. The very item that sends him towards his brother is going to ultimately save him and his brothers and the nations and us, leading to our salvation. Is God the author of the story or not? Is God involved or not in this story, in the pages of the story? He's, he's, he's very immediately involved, even though we don't hear him, hear him speak. So Joseph went after his brothers, and he found them near Dothan, which is like in Asheville, right? He just sent them really far away. He went up like 40 miles and then another 15 miles or something. It's really, really far away. And he finds these needle in the haystack, and they see him from a distance. This is the plot, right? Like why is the Bible including it that he's like a distance, maybe, what, say 20 minutes away? How long could eyesight go at the pace of a 17-year-old walking? It wasn't just like a, a crime of passion. It was a calculated murder plot. Right, that he's thinking about this. So they're thinking about it, and it switches from any brother to they. So they start planning, they start plotting. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other, come now, let's kill him. Throw him into the cisterns and and say that wild animals devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Yeah, there's this um (coughs) this movie called Envy with Jack Black and Ben Stiller. And basically the premise is that Jack Black has this plan to make like a bajillion dollars by like changing poop into something and like using it for fuel. And Ben Stiller's like, you idiot, you know what I mean? Like. Sometimes the craziest people will have the smartest ideas. I guess he's like, "You idiot! I'm not going to do that." Well, of course, next thing is six months later, on the screen, and like Jack Black, horse makes a bajillion dollars and like rides up on this white horse and just keeps like rubbing it in. And his kids are like, "You're great!" And the other kids, guy, you know, love the guy. It's like, "How come you don't have a horse?" And all this kind of stuff, right? So the whole movie's <laughs> set up on envy, and this is the premise, right? Because we can all get along with Jeff Bezos, like that's fine. But if your brother, and let's say you know you guys both make thirty grand a year, tomorrow runs into some money, and now he's making. $500,000 a year, you're telling me you're not a little bit upset about it. That's not like, you know, Steve Jobs. That's an idiot that you're sleeping. You were in bunk beds with that kid, you know, giving each other wet willies, and now he's coming in with five hundred grand a year. It's like, you're a little bit upset, right? Like, we have these grades. Like, we, we, can, we, can, we can deal with some people being above and below, but when there's mobility, right, come on, you tell me that that wouldn't bother you a little bit now that your brother and your kid's brothers have it off, and now they're going to Harvard, and your kids are trying to go to community this and that, like tell me that that's not going to bother you a little bit, right? This is the nature of envy, right? I, I love this is what C.S. Lewis says because envy, he says, is, is at its basis competitive. Like envy isn't just trying to be good, it's trying to be better. And if I'm just good but not better, envy is not satisfied, right? So this is the trick. The trick is, is that Joseph had a dream about the stars bowing down, but to be a star in the nation of God is a fantastic thing, It just wasn't good enough if Joseph was at the center of it, you see? And the only people that are jealous of arrogant people are arrogant people. And the only people that get in fights with childish people are childish people, right? So the reason why he doesn't tell you what he thinks about Joseph being favorite and Jacob having an idol with Joseph, the reason why he's not dealing with that is because he's trying to speak to the brothers because we're the brothers, we're not Joseph. And what do you do when you don't know why somebody's favored? You don't know why they made a bunch of money and it's not fair and they're not as righteous as you or good looking as you or at least so you think. Your pride starts to come out there and you realize the only reason why you're jealous is because you're not at the center of the story. This ain't about theology. This is about pride. This is about me wanting to be at the center of the story. And the only reason why I'm offended by somebody else's progress is because I wanted to be in the middle of it. So this is what C.S. Lewis says. The point of each person, each person's pride is in competition with everyone else's pride. It is because I wanted to be the big noise at the party that I'm so annoyed that someone else is the big noise. Two of a trade never agree. Like a selfish person can get along with an unselfish person, but two selfish people, they ain't going to work. And that's what's happening in our marriages, right? That's kind of what's going on. We all want to be the center. And we're getting woken up to the fact, oh no, like my mom and dad thought I was the center of the universe, but I'm not. And it's rude and brutal. I don't feel good. I thought I was going to be the worship leader in charge, man, I was going to kill it, you know? Not a, Timothy's not like that, but I was when I was trying to get into worship. It's like, but I was always the lead singer, right? And you were too. You weren't Ringo. And so he puts you with these selfish people to reveal it about you. It's not about Cain or Abel, and it's not about Joseph or the brothers. It's about why is what I have not good enough because it's never good enough. And this is, what C. So this is what C.S. Lewis says. He says, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only having more than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever, or good-looking, but they're not. They are proud of being richer, cleverer, better-looking than others. If everyone can be equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It's a comparison that makes us proud. The pleasure of being above the rest, that's what it is that gets us up in the morning. Once the element of competition is gone, pride has gone as well. So using these images of dumping him in a cistern and blaming it on these ferocious wolves, you know who the cistern is. Do you know who the wolves are? The cisterns are from Jeremiah. They're empty graves. They're places that are supposed to catch water, but they're leaky. So it doesn't matter how much blessing and how much water and how much of the Holy Spirit and how much of your kids and how much wealth and how much stuff that you have, it's never enough. That's the empty cistern that they throw Jacob or they throw Joseph into. And the Bible says that, that sin creeps at the door from Cain to Abel all the way through the, the brothers and you and me. Creeps at the door and it doesn't want to be buddies. It wants to rule over us. And man was given to rule over the animals because, it, because he fell, the animals ruled over him and he started to have sex like an animal and he started to work like an animal and he started to treat his neighbor like an animal. They're the ferocious wolves. That's what the Bible's saying, right? It's this emptiness. Now, Reuben, the older brother, comes along. He tries to polish it out. Now pay attention, this is what it says. So when Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this, this is the key, to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern, and the cistern was empty, and there was no water in it. You notice the rationale, the motive of what Reuben was doing was to try and please his father. He was the oldest son, so the risk is on his liability. It's on his clock, because he's supposed to be looking over the brothers, so it's not really about Joseph, right? And if you go back to Genesis 35, he's in a lot of hot water because he slept with his father's wife. Y'all don't want to hear the X-rated story of the Bible, don't come to, next week because it's about to be crazy. Don't bring the kids next week. It's rough next week, let me just say. I don't even know. I'm going to be blushing the whole time. <laughs> but he's in a lot of hot water. He's trying to get the blessing back. So is it about Joseph or is it about him? Is our love for people about people or is it about politics? Politics means we're shaking, ba- we're shaking hands, kissing babies. We're doing, even in church, doing what we can to get what we want done. Because the consensus creates an authority. And if enough people say the same thing at the same time to a lot of people, it just sounds like God's talking. A lot of people can't tell the difference between consensus and prophecy. But prophecy is not the same thing as consensus. We live in a kingdom, not a popular sovereignty, right? And so when the Lord is speaking, a lot of us can't tell the difference between what looks good and what is good. And when you buy your wife flowers on Valentine's Day, is it because you actually think about her or because you don't want to be a bad husband? And when you go and visit a graveside, do you actually care about the person or are you thinking about lunch? So the appearance of goodness will keep us from true goodness every time. The politics of it will keep us from the prophecy. And there's enough people in a room that can get together and pat each other on the back to think that we're doing good and soothsay each other, but the prophets are not being heard because we don't want to hear them. So this is the idea. The politics of Reuben keeps him safe enough not to challenge himself. He doesn't kill Joseph, and so his blood's on his hands, right? But he doesn't ultimately know he's the vicious wolf. He's the cistern he's about to throw his brothers into. So now there's this other brother, okay, Judah. And look at verse 25. They go out to Ruth Chris right in the middle of it. This is trying to show us how animalistic we are, right? They go out and start eating lunch. They go out to a barbecue. They're brothers in the pit, right? But so do we, don't we? Like, we, we have... We have tons of people that are in our need and in our care. And although it, it doesn't look like a wild animal, although it has a suit and a tie on, it's just as vicious as any of these wild animals is. Eating dinner and lunch over their dying brother, right? They're gathered around here just having a good time. Eating this dinner. And so they are the animals in this story. And so as they sat down, they eat their, their meal. They have no conscience to this thing. And they look up and they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites. Is God not in control? Is God not having a conspiracy of grace in the middle of the controversy of evil? He's sending a caravan right at the right minute. God's not speaking, but it's not disinvolved. So here comes this caravan. Is it, is it just happenstance that this happens, that a man would send Joseph to this point B, and then at point B there would be a caravan? As the conspiracy of evil moves forward to kill Joseph, so the conspiracy of grace comes to rescue and save him right at the same time. Same, same cart, different plan, different plot. So their camels are loaded with spices and balm and myrrh, and they were on their way to take him down to Egypt. Right? So he's using everything. I mean, he's going to use, you know, Instagram and and your spouse and politics and normal everyday businessy-looking things to do divine work in your life. It's never outside of his purview, his scope and sequence. There is nothing outside of his authority. He will use all things to good and glory for those that are called according to his purpose. And if we are picky about the messenger in the middle of the message. We're going, to miss, we're going to miss a lot of what he's doing because it's not going to be in church. It's going to be in the middle of your day. And if you're humble, you'll hear it. And so that person that's coming to have conflict with you, they might be 90% wrong, but they're 10% right. And if you want to have a reason to politicize that thing and disassociate, to cancel them, you could plug your, ear, plug your ears all you want, right? So this is the idea. Let those who want to hear, let those who have ears, let them hear because God is working all the time. Now, Judah is not about politics. He's about profit not F, right? Profit. He's about the bottom line. Judas says to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Why don't we use this circumstance to sell him? Put a little coin in our pocket, right? I want to make a little money off of this. So let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay a hand on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. It covers it up. Kind of sounds like it's love, but it's not. Right? So like, here's the deal. You're going to come to work on Monday and something will happen, I promise you. Something will happen and it will be the decision between task or people. It'll be the decision between efficiency or love. And the two of them will not, uh, not, not uh, intersect. You'll have to make the decision. And the task will always convince you that for the greater good, like I'm just gonna get rich so that all boats rise, you know what I mean? It'll all trickle down eventually. Like the task is, I'm just gonna get more stuff done and efficiently and eventually once my tasks are all done, then I'll start loving people because I'll be solid enough, I'll be rich enough, I'll be planned out enough, I'll have my ducks in a row and then I'll get around to the people. Once the tasks are complete, I'll get to the people. Well, how do we know about the task? They never end. And so the efficiency, the, uh, the, the efficiency of work and the bottom line and profit um, never give us a reprieve, never give us enough space to actually care for the person. You think about it this way in terms of church. I think about this, but it's like the Great Commission, go and make disciples, exists to serve the Great Commandment, love God and love others. Oftentimes, it can get backwards in our desire to be efficient and to be expedient, right? To go and make disciples, but it just becomes another notch in the belt and becomes another reason why I get to make my way up the stair step or up to God, and it not, never comes about people, right? So sometimes we, we do this thing where we make disciple, we, we love people just enough so that they can come into the kingdom of God, but we're not really loving the person so much as we love the, uh, the, um, the, the goal of, of going to make a disciple, to go and make a convert. But remember that the Great Commission only came after the Great Commandment. The reason why you'd ever preach Jesus to someone is because you love them. It's because you want, you, you, preach, you preach the gospel with tears in your eyes because you want them to know Jesus because you love God and love people. And so, so efficiency, right, will always conflict with love. And God is saying that the kingdom of, the kingdom of God, well, it's saying that the prophets will be, will be killed. It's saying that the move of God will always be squelched by our obsession with the bottom line of profit, as long as it's in competition with stopping for the one, with loving the one in front of you, with bringing the cup of cold water. It is not efficient, and it's not, um, it's not expedient to love, to stop for your neighbor. And so it all kind of come, comes together in verse 28 when it says, The Midianite merchants came by, and the brothers pulled Joseph up out of the pit, and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites, who took him to Egypt. I mean, who really did pick him up out of the pit? Was it the Midianite? Was it the brothers? I mean, who was it? Verse 29, when Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes and he went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Where can I turn now is what Reuben says. Not where's my brother, not what have I done to my brother, not why have I, why have I killed the prophets because of my jealousy. It's what, what's going on with me? Where, where am I gonna go? What's, what's up with my life? Verse 31, then they got Joseph's robe, they slaughtered a goat and dipped it in a, his robe in blood as though God's not writing the story, as though God doesn't have a purpose. I mean, if you're a little Jewish boy or girl and you're reading this text, the takeaway has to be this. There's no way that Joseph sees the fingerprints of God in his life in the middle of this story. There's no way, if God's not talking, that Joseph sees the bigger picture. But even when God's not talking, doesn't mean that God's not involved. He is on every page and in every chapter and in every hour of your life. And even when you don't see it and don't recognize it, his sovereignty is still prevailing. There is a conspiracy of grace that over overcomes over the conspiracy of evil and the plot of evil that's come across against Joseph's life and yours. So this, this robe of blood casts a prophetic image, right, towards a blood that's not only going to forgive Joseph or forgive Joseph, but his brothers and save them as well. Verse 32, they took the ornate robe back from their, uh, to their father. We found this, examine it to see whether it's your son's robe. And he recognized it and said, is my son's robe? Some ferocious animal had devoured him. There he is in his passivity. He doesn't even ask any questions. He just fills in the gaps. It must have been, I don't know, it just must have been a fox that got in the cupboard and, you know, screwed with the spirituality of my household. And it's just the, the devil at every corner and under every rock. Well, maybe, yeah, but also your passivity. Also the fact that you didn't ask about the brother. Well, how come he didn't ask about Joseph? What do you mean? Which animal? Where is it? Can I see it? He's not leaving his home to go and find out where his brother is. He just wants... He just, I don't know, he just wants a better word. He doesn't want to have to deal with it. And so the father kind of echoes the same lament as Reuben does here in verse 34. So Jacob tears his clothes, and woe is me. He puts a sackcloth on. He mourns his son for many days. All of his sons and daughters come to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he says, I will continue to mourn until I join my son to the grave. So the father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. The dream wasn't offensive, um, to the brothers because it was politically incorrect. It was offensive because they weren't at the center of it. And the father wasn't at the center of it. And all of us, right, in the beginning of when we launch off into our life and into our dreams, the reasons why we have so much offenses and, and hard-heartedness and the reason why we get into you know, toxic relationships and the reason why we don't have compassion, we can practice contempt as well is because we don't want to hear it. We don't want to hear the dream that wakes us up to put him at the center. The one that convicts us about loving our neighbor, about putting our phone down, the one that convicts us about our own passivity, politics, our profit, our bottom line. We don't want to hear it. We're too busy. We're too important. We're too ambitious after our own dream. But Jesus, even even in our blindness and our deafness, is working out an authored story. It's like, why didn't Joseph die in the pit? Who really did rescue him out of it? Who put Joseph on the cart? Who sent the man? Who sent the cart right at the right time? I mean, who's really in charge of this story? Is Joseph writing the story? Are the brothers writing the story? Is Satan writing the story? Who's writing? Who's the author and the perfecter of this story? Jesus, right? He was sent by the father on a mission. But the father that sent him wasn't ambivalent to his kids. My sheep know me and they know me by name. And I call on them. And I'm not like the hired hand. I care for them and I lay my life down for my sheep. This is what the father does. Right? So Jesus sent. And he doesn't wander. He goes straight to the desert. He's tempted without sin. And he finds his lost brothers wandering around in the desert. And he pleads the fifth for him. The same way that Joseph doesn't have one quotation in this, in this narrative is the same way that Jesus has no defense for himself. He lays his life down willingly. And he stayed in the pit for three days. He did not resurrect himself immediately out of the pit to save himself. He died so that Joseph could be saved. And, and Jesus took the, took the cross so that Joseph could get the cart. This isn't a free rest, restoration project. This isn't a free salvation project. There was somebody that paid for it. There was a prophet that died at the hands of of prophet killers like us, right? And, and it's not just society in Hollywood that kills prophets, it's us. We've killed the prophets. We have blood on our hands. We're the one that killed Jesus and he's the one that speaks a better word than Abel. And Jesus became sin on our behalf that we would become the righteousness of God. This is our Jesus. This is the gospel. He, he, is, he is writing, he is authoring and protecting, uh, he is authoring and perfecting the story. And so this is what visited us today in the middle of our mundane, you know, April 18th type of a day it's my mom's birthday by the way so it's not just totally monday it's a great day but we can't hear what he's saying all the time just because he's not verbal doesn't mean he's avoiding doesn't mean he's not involved just because we can't see the fingerprints initially and because that cart looks awful looming to go down to egypt kind of looks like god's not doing his job when the brothers all have to say kind of looks like he's like the enemy's winning doesn't it When that guide, you know, could have sent him back to his father, who would be safe and sound, sent him on a detour to Dothan to go and find. It seems like the world is tipped towards the scale of evil, but Genesis will prophesy to us, probably the most important prophecy we ever hear out of the book, right? Genesis 50. Even what the enemy meant for evil, he's turning for good. It's, it's It's in the broken depravity, busted up politics, COVID issue that we're in, marriage strife that we're in. He's not avoiding it. He's using it. This is who he is. He's a, he, he uses, he turns evil. He doesn't detour evil. He doesn't just like squelch evil right in the age. He uses it. And even when we can't hear him, doesn't mean he's not involved. The prophets are speaking if we have ears to hear it. And the choice is, is that you know, we're either awake to it or not. And this is what he's doing. He's waking us up to his dream because our dream is too small. And because our dream is not to have a little solar system around us where our wife and kids are trophies for our pleasure and goodwill. We're meant to be solar systems to the sun. And we're meant to bow down to that Jesus. And we're meant to feed nations in in famine. And this is what it is. This is exactly what this book is written for us. That we would wake up to his dream. That we would not be, wake up, O sleeper. Right? This is what Ephesians 4 said. Wake up, O sleeper. Rise, shine. A new day has come. There's a different author with a different pen in the hand. And he's writing in the middle of this corruptive narrative. He's writing a a rescue operation right in the middle of our pages, right in the middle of our mundane April eighteenth. To write a redemption story to cart us off. To be sent into the nations, not for imprisonment, but for uplifting and for feeding the nations. This is why you're in Greenville, South Carolina. This is why he sent you into Greenville. It's why you're alive today and not in heaven. It's to feed nations in famine. You know, people are in a love famine right now. There's people that would just die to have a word of encouragement. They're so thirsty right now. And, he, and you're here to give them that. To be a resource of his, his sovereignty and his grace and his love. You are there to feed nations in famine. There are children right now, no one's looking out for them. Nobody. They're in the foster care system, but they're also just in their homes in like $500,000 houses. With nobody at home. Just getting eaten alive by wolves. That a passive father or mentor or disciple would get woken up and realize this ain't about me. This is about which service I want to go to, right? Or, I mean, I don't like the way they do the choir here or whatever. You know, small groups need to be like this. No, that's not what this is about. It's not about politics. It's about prophecy. It's about one man coming to save the nations, to wake you up to that dream, and you'll never be satisfied without it. You don't belong at the center of your dream. It's too heavy for you to carry. He's the center of the dream, and that's the only dream that will be awoken to a manifold, multicolored, multi-ethnic, socioeconomic status, a miracle in the midst of Greenville, a manifold wisdom that people would look into and marvel, angels would look into and marvel about the manifold dream of God sitting around the table, royal priests into the nations, salt and light mysteries of heaven prophesied to the nations out of babes and infants singing praise and seeing honor and glory crowned on our heads as though we deserved it, as though we weren't the ones that killed Joseph in the first place. A couple of questions that we would consider based off of Romans 2. Romans 2 says that when we scapegoat people rather than accept the lamb on our behalf, when we scapegoat, when we point the finger, we show contempt for God's mercy. We act like we got ourselves up out of the pit. That's what we're saying when we think that somebody else is to blame for this whole thing as though it's not the mirror, as though it's not the four fingers pointing back to me, right? That's it. So when we, when we show contempt and not compassion, when we put the AirPods in, as opposed to loving our neighbor and preaching the gospel the way that it was preached to us, we show contempt for the prophets. We kill the prophets. The way that Stephen says we always do it, we show contempt for his, for his kindness. And so where am I, you know, on this thing? Where am I passive instead of honoring? The opposite of, 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 of contempt is not just acceptance, it's honor. It's, it's value for every living thing. C.S. Lewis says we don't walk by anybody today that isn't eternal. And it's the people we snub and it's the people we judge and it's the people we look down on that are our target places for grace, either because they're gonna issue our grace or because we're gonna help to issue theirs. And he's not a top-down you know, pyramid scheme on this thing. Like, it's, it's, it's a very three-dimensional process of engaging the people around us out of passivity and into honor Romans 12 says, if you understand the gospel, you love everyone and you honor. You honor. You find value. You find image bearing in every person that you ever cross. And so, this is the call of grace, the the conspiracy of grace that wakes us up in this dream. We don't pass by anybody that isn't eternal. Number two, where am I political instead of prophetic? There's something that you're hearing right now that nobody else is saying, and because no one else is saying it, you just go along with the flow. But politics and prophecy don't mix. What man decides to do and collude around is not what God is saying. And so let the minority, God is the majority in every issue, even if he's the minority. And if he says it, then you go with what God says, and you dump your fear of man at the door. You just go for it, right? Because this world cannot afford more politics. The reason why this generation is so upset and upside down and and, and depressed and, and anxious is because it's run by politics. It's not run by prophecy. It's not run by actual love for real people. It's run by the appearance of love as opposed to the contents of it. Where do I seek profits over people? You will be given the choice on Monday morning for love or expedience. And expedience will always lie to you and tell you that it will lead you to love, but it doesn't. Because task and profit is in contrast with love. Love is not profitable. Love begins when we love our neighbor, right? Love begins when we do things that are not at all beneficial unless the tomb is empty. Paul says that if if the tomb is not empty, then everything we do, we're the biggest fools, we're the biggest idiots of this whole parade. But if the tomb is empty, then everything we do in love is the greatest, most profitable thing we'll ever do. So you're gonna be put in front of a task tomorrow and it's gonna be the choice. Do I go ahead and build up my own little kingdom or do I trust that kingdom's not built with hands? That's the decision, profit or people. Right. So where have I shown contempt for God's kindness? His mercy is not done working yet. His, the pen is in his hand. He's writing a conspiracy of grace and you don't have to know, you know the next line or the next scene. You just trust and obey. And he, he, he will bring us up out of the pit and into the nations to go and feed the nations for his glory and not for our own. Uh, I want to invite you to stand and have the prayer team to come forward, and we always have opportunities to have faith and move and, and, and have hands um, uh, laid on people for the process of, of healing, of all sorts of healing. And so uh, if you're anxious, for anyone in the room that's anxious, if there's anyone in here that's sick, if there's anyone in here that needs a touch from the Holy Spirit, then this is the place that we would be a house of prayer and learn to ask and seek and knock early and often. And so uh, I would love to just invite you to, um, to respond this morning in faith, however you're called. And maybe you even have a name on your heart that you would pray for, that you would you know, turn your heart towards and recognize it is kindness that has led you to repentance. And maybe it would be your kindness that would extend God's mercy towards them. You might pray for a name. You might pray you might pray for um, a side of your heart that, has, uh, that is given to one of these worldly things as opposed to the heavenly kingdom. I don't know. But just come to him and accept his beauty for, for for brokenness but Lord Jesus we come to you from this scripture and it's just always relevant the scripture is always relevant and it always has the last word and so Lord that you would be truthful and everyone else be a liar Lord would you turn us in this generation from this these evil days Lord turn us towards the prophets towards the ones that would love God and love others that would act justly and love mercy and walk humbly with God and so um would you call us even now it would be a miracle it'd be a scandal um it would be a heist if you were to rescue families to feed others in, in famine. So thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are enough. You have enough, Lord. Fill our cisterns, cisterns with your Holy Spirit, Lord. Give us, give us the fruit of the Spirit and not the spirit, not the, not the flesh. Lord, just rescue us to be in the image of your Son and not in, in, in vicious animals, as the prophets have have convicted us of. And so, Lord Jesus, come, Holy Spirit, come. We ask for revival in our hearts and in our families and in our Lord, and just turn our attention to some affections on you again, Lord. You're mighty to say, you're mighty to say, and we thank you for moments like this that we would have our eyes opened and ears open so we can hear you. In Jesus' name. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.